Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, will tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Battle Walks, a special destination with a special guest host. We are doing Arnhem, Operation Market Garden, the World War II invasion of Holland, the big alloyed ploy to win the Second World War in one fell swoop and joining us to talk all about it is Battlefield Guide to the Stars, it's Joe Hook. Joe great to have you back on the show thank you thanks it's great to be back on um and um yeah looking forward to talking with you matt now this is a very special battlefield for you isn't it it's i should say at the outset it's one that i haven't actually been to i've I've been to a small part of the market garden area in the netherlands but i haven't actually been to arnhem and and this area so it's going to be a, a really fascinating one for me i'm i'm really joining the listeners in learning all about this it's an area that you uh, you love on the battlefields though isn't it joe yeah it is um it's one of the very first battlefields i really got to know in depth and um i didn't initially want to do it because um you know, it's very uh, closely knit to uh, the parachute regiments, and um, it was something that had really not taken my uh, taken my notice really. And I I got to do it because I was working for a tour company who wanted a guide embedded in uh, Germany to take military groups, and so I thought, okay, I'll go and do the recce. Went over there, and I fell in love with it. It's a battle of what ifs. It's uh, actions that are just astounding, and the area it's fought over, certainly for the British, so I'm just talking about the British today, um, is walkable and it hasn't changed a lot. Well, let's start by you giving us your really quick potted history of of this area. What, what was Market Garden all about and, and what's the area we're going to specifically be walking today? 
Okay, so very quickly in a quick summary, Market Garden is once we've broken out of Normandy, um, we've really, really pushed a battered German army up through for the British up through uh, to Belgium. Um, but at that point in time, our supplies, we're still being resupplied back from Normandy. And um, really, there's a question of do we have a broad front push um, which we can't do because of resupplies. And so Montgomery comes up with a plan, and that is to drop a carpet of airborne troops, two American divisions, one British division, um, up a pencil-like uh, area from uh, the Belgian-Netherlands border up through, uh, in the hope that they can um, outflank the Siegfried line um, and head into Germany. So airborne troops dropping um, capturing vital objectives that ground troops are going to then push northwards up a 64-mile corridor. The hope is to be in Berlin by Christmas. And the really important question, Joe: were they in Berlin by Christmas? No. no. <laughs> but there is a what-if to that, which I shall probably come on to towards the end of the show. Montgomery said it was 90% successful, and I would say it was 75% successful, definitely. Okay, but it didn't achieve quite the uh, the 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 great victory that uh, the Allies had envisaged. No, it didn't achieve the outcome they'd envisaged, but it did liberate a large part of the Netherlands. Well, we're going to be focusing the on the area around uh, the city of Arnhem, and this is the British area of operations. Tell us a little bit about what went on here and the, the overview of the ground we're going to be walking. Um, so most of the ground is. Um, it's not as flat as you would think of it, it is in that part of the Netherlands. It is a little bit rolling. Um, it is the furthest most objective. And um, we had three airborne divisions. So from south to north, 101st American Airborne Division would drop in the area of Eindhoven, which is um, the southernmost point. It's not far from the uh, Belgian border. And then moving northwards, you would have the 82nd um, and right up at the top of Arnhem, you have the the first airborne division, and the idea is that ground troops are going to move up through those vital, which we hope to be captured objectives, mainly bridges over the main waterways, until they get to the Arnhem Bridge, held by the first British airborne division, or hoped to be held by the first British airborne division. Um, at which point they'll cross the bridge, and then armour uh, thirty corps. Um, commanded by a guy called um, General Horrocks, will pass through them and head on to the into the industrial heartland of the Netherlands. Um, it's hoped that the 1st Airborne Division are going to be holding that bridge at Arnhem, but they have various, um, you know, various obstacles or, or things that happen um, after their drop that mean that only the northern end of the bridge is held by them. Um, and that's something I'm going to be talking, chatting to you about um, a bit later on. Well, it's good walking country, isn't it? As you mentioned, it's great to get out and stroll around and it's a relatively compact area. Um, let's get on with it. Let's let's start walking because I'm fascinated to hear about this. Where are we going to begin our tour of the uh, of the Arnhem Battlefield? Okay, so we're going to be begin our tour on a road called the Wolf Hazerweg and it's drop zone X, X-ray for the men of the 2nd Parachute Battalion. And we start at a little car park. There's a little car park, pretty nondescript car park. It's a beautiful area. It's all heathland, um, a bit like, very similar to the land these men would have trained on in uh, areas of Aldershot, 
um, prior to coming out to um, Market Garden or very similar to the areas where the Paras had their headquarters. But it is all Heathland, um, little quite affluent villages. So Walthazer is the nearest village. And right on this spot that we are stood, this is, it's like a car park, um, just a little, little pull-in. At about 12.30 on the 17th of September, if you'd looked up in the sky, you'd have seen 180 men of the Pathfinder, um, Pathfinders coming down. And what, what their job t- is to do is to uh, drop, parachute drop in to certain areas known as DZs, drop zones for uh, parachutists, landing zones for gliders. And their job is to actually mark out the area. And they'll use various um, pieces of equipment, uh, eureka beacons, uh, marking lights for the incoming main assault, which is due to drop about 40 minutes after those pathfinders originally, uh, first of all, drop. And this is where we stood this morning, where the pathfinders would come in. It's a, it's a Sunday afternoon. It's a sublime late September Sunday afternoon. The area has been bombed that morning, prepare, uh, 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 pre-drop bombardment and um, so the area has been bombed the asylum which we would walk that through uh, which is by Wolfhazer that is bombed and about 80 of the inmates from the asylum are killed in that bombing it's a softening up raid but actually this is a Sunday afternoon it's that late September or Sunday afternoon the local people are not expecting anything to really be happening how many paratroops dropped in this area, Joe, and on how many drop zones? So, um, off the top of my head, so you're talking about thousands of paratroopers. So the 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 um, the area, the whole, the division is te- about ten thousand strong, but not the whole of the division. But will be dropping on that one day. That's one of the problems with Market Garden is the division is going to be dropped over a course of three days. And obviously, by the time you've got paratroopers dropping out of the sky on the second day, you lose any element of surprise because there are German troops within the area. Um, they're also going to be dropping something like eight miles from the Arnhem Bridge again, which means that they're going to have to get to the bridge itself. And that again, if you've got German troops in the area, which we have, we know about them but we believe they're quite low-level troops, again, you're going to lose that element of surprise. So over the three days, about 10,000 troops are going to be dropping on a, a number of different DZs and LZs. So DZX, which we, we're standing, we'd be standing at now, um, will be turned into a landing zone for gliders on the second day. And then on the third day, um, you will have men who are attached to the 1st Airborne Division, 1st Independent Polish Parachute Squadron, they will also be dropping in. And the idea is they're going to be dropping their paratroopers, dropping at the southern end of the Arnhem Bridge, while their gliders will be dropping north of Arnhem. The whole idea is over three days, they are all going to um, move towards Arnhem and provide a major defensive perimeter at the bridge. But it doesn't happen like that. So the the concept basically is that the paratroops will capture key objectives and then hold onto them and wait for the land forces to arrive because obviously one of the issues with paratroops is they can drop infantry with their light weapons but they can't take any heavy, heavy weapons with them. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a really fair assessment. And for the 2nd Parachute Battalion, they have got the three main objectives and the three main objectives that they are 
um, earmarked to um, take are the railway bridge in Arnhem on their route into Arnhem. So now they're about eight miles away from their, it's about seven, yeah, seven, eight miles away from their first objective. Their first objective is the railway bridge. It's been earmarked. We've seen it on the maps. Um, the second objective is a small pontoon bridge that sits today just about a kilometre east, say a bit less than a kilometre east of the main Arnhem Road Bridge. And then also their final objective is the main Arnhem Road Bridge itself. And that is the objective for second parachute battalions. The other parachute battalions the first and third, who will be dropping on the same day, so dropping in the area just um, where we are stood, um, their objective is to make their way on routes that run parallel to the second parachute battalion towards the bridge. Everything is dropped in the in the west, um, pushing, I never get this right, the west pushing eastwards towards the bridge but their routes will run parallel to each other given code names tiger um, leopard and lion and um, the idea is that second parachute battalion have got the objectives of the bridges but the first and third parachute battalions are going to be moving with them running parallel but eventually will form that whole defensive perimeter. And then you've got your air landing men who come in on the gliders. So the glider pilots for the British, they will, um, once they land, they will revert to an infantry role. So our glider pilots did, as opposed to the Americans. And then you have got the um, air landing brigades all coming in by gliders, um, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, 2nd South Staffords and the 1st Border Regiment, again, will form that, be part of that defensive perimeter. So you've got a huge amount of troops, but as you say, lightly rolled and lightly armed. So we've had a look at the area where the Pathfinders came in, obviously a vital part of the opening phases of the of the battle. What's next on our uh, on our tour? So the next part on our tour is a really key spot, and it's one of the places I think everybody goes to. If you're down in Arnhem on the commemorations, everybody will go to a place called the Culvert. So from where we are at the moment, we um, head down to into the village of Wolfhazer itself and we turn left across the railway line and then there's a little road called Johannahoveg and um, you go, it, it goes into a track that runs parallel to the railway line. And on the 17th of September, Urquhart, who is the divisional commander for the 1st Airborne Division, he knows that his parachute battalions, 1st, 2nd and 3rd, are going to take quite a while to rendezvous and get to the bridge. So he's earmarked his recce squadron, who is a guy called um, Goff. Uh, the commander is a guy called uh, Major Goff. And he said to him, I want the recce squadron to get in their jeeps so their jeeps come down by glider and marry up with them as quickly as possible and race to the bridge almost to in a coup de main attempt to hold the bridge and await these slower oncoming parachute battalions and it's at this point if we walk down this track it's a dusty track again it hasn't changed a lot it dips down and then it dips up again where it dips down so you're on the northern side of the railway line to your right there is a culvert, a little bridge, 
and it is tiny. I'm five foot and I'm the only person I know that can walk under it standing up. You have to bend your head. You can get a Willie's Jeep under it. But to your left, you come into an open area of heathland. And when the paras dropped, when First Airborne Division dropped on that morning, they know that there are German troops in the area. The one key uh, German troop in the area is a guy called Captain S- uh, SS Captain Kraft, Sepp Kraft, and he commands the 16th SS Training Battalion. And he's got his men deployed in the area of the drop that morning. Just by sheer coincidence, they're practicing anti-invasion, anti-airborne drops that morning. He's got about 345 men under his command. And the place where we walk down, we walk down this track. To your right, you've got the railway embankment with the culvert. Then to your left, you've got an area of high ground. And he deploys his men on both this area. And the high ground is to the left of the path we're going to walk down. And to the right, you've got the railway embankment. So basically, he deploys them there. And it's a classic ambush position. Once the airborne drop, um, it's uh, Cresswell is the guy um, who is, I'm pretty sure his name's Cresswell. He's the guy that is earmarked to marry up with his uh, squadron, the recce squadron, and race to the bridge. And he's got about three jeeps with him. And he takes the first jeep. There's a bit of confusion with the jeeps marrying up. Some of them don't appear straight away. But he takes the first jeep that appears. He tells his wireless operator, Arthur Barlow, he said, you wait for the other jeeps. He grabs another couple of um, uh, men with him and he races to the bridge. And two of his jeeps have gone on uh, in front of him. He leaps frog through them. He goes down the track and he's the lead jeep. And he enters this area of Heathland and he literally enters the killing zone because as his jeep goes past the Germans who are, ensconced on the railway embankment in this piece of high ground they open up on him and there's a firefight with the uh, jeeps coming on behind but the consequences of it mean it's now left to the second parachute battalion to make their way to the bridge and also the enemy are now on full alert um I think the pathfinders drop they drop about half past 12 the main assault drops about half past one by half past two the SS Corps commander who commands this um, two armoured divisions, the 10th and the 9th, he, by half past two, he's already sending out orders for his men to deploy to stop the paras reaching the bridge. So where we are in this culvert, again, it hasn't changed. Everybody comes down here for commemorations. You get the Dutch, they go driving their Willie's jeeps through. Um, if you lay the windshield flat, you can go through. But it's a, it's a real iconic spot for this battle and it also has um it will also play a big part after all defense at the bridge fails the first airborne have to drop back into a pocket of land known as the perimeter or the hexen kessel the witch's cauldron and the one of the only ways of getting over that railway embankment or underneath it safely is via this culvert. And so this is a number of days after when all defence at the bridge has fallen. We drop back. The Germans are pushing us back into a pocket. Think of Dunkirk being pushed back into a pocket, which they hold. And loads of troops try and get under this particular area. So it's an iconic part of the battlefield. 
Sounds unbelievable. I'm looking forward to getting over there, Joe. What's uh, what's next on the on the tour? So next, we um, then, because we are following 2nd Parachute Battalion, we have to kind of backtrack a little bit. We go past the original drop zone. So we, t- we take our, if you're in a car, you can bypass it a little bit. But we, we go past um, the place where we were standing, where all the RV happened, the drop zones. And we enter a village called Helsam and Renkham. And this is really where in the village of Helsam is where... Um, Lieutenant Colonel John Frost, who commands the 2nd Parachute Battalion, he has his rendezvous. So he's getting all his men together and he will use bugle calls to rendezvous. rendezvous. Now, if you watch A Bridge Too Far, the film, iconic film, you'll see that they talk about radio crystals and all that. That's a little bit um, not quite correct. Um, radios, uh, uh, communications at Arnhem was difficult. One of the reasons it was difficult is because of the ground there. Even up until the 80s and 90s, the Dutch people living in the area had problems tuning into their televisions because of the ground. Um, also, you put a radio, any type of radio, into a glider or a man pack where you carry it in your backpack and communications are going to be difficult um, because c- communications or sophisticated uh, radio communications were still very much in their infancy. So as kind of a back backup, Lieutenant Colonel Frost has said, okay, I'm going to rendezvous. I'm going to call my all my men in on a bugle call. And he has a bugle with him. That bugle can still be seen in the Hartenstein Museum um, in, the, in the village of Oosterbeek. But he calls all these men, they rendezvous. And this is about three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, they do hear machine gun fire in the background, but Frost knows his objective is to get to the bridge. And very uh, soon after about three o'clock, they start making their way um, along what was known as Route Lion. Um, it's a road called the Benenden Dorpsweg, which they eventually drop down to, which is the closest road to the uh, Neder Rhine, the lower Rhine. And they will be making their way along the Rhine um, to their first objective. And their first objective is to be undertaken by um, Major Dover from C Company. So what is there to see in this area, Joe, that uh, that reminds us of what was going on during the war? Um, so you go through a beautiful affluent area of Dorworth, uh, wooded countryside, and the first real significant place you come to is a place called um, – oh, the name escapes me now. Let me think. It's, it's a piece of high ground – and it has literally just gone out of my mind. But it's a real piece of high ground that overlooks the Lower Rhine. It'll come back to me in a minute. But this is, again, another iconic area. It's the one piece of high ground that was vital for the British to hold. And um, there's a cafe on there now. And you can literally look down onto the Lower Rhine. And you can see all the way back to Nijmegen. And Nijmegen is where the 82nd Airborne Division were. and it just gives you a real good overview of how close 30 Corps, when the ground troops, when they came up towards Arnhem, how close they actually got. And at um, this area, let me think about what's it called. No, names just escaped me. But you can also see where once the British have been pushed into this pocket, this is the eastern side of the, yeah, the eastern, western, let me think. Uh, anyway, it, it's the, eastern side of the perimeter 
And when the British have been pushed into this perimeter pocket, they're trying to, the Dorsets try and reinforce there, the um, Polish try and reinforce there, and they have to reinforce across the Rhine. There's, when the first border regiment get there, they hold this particular area until they're pushed off there by German troops. Both sides know, because it's a piece of high ground, how important it is. And that's the first place we stop. And we, I always stop there and show people, you know, that Rhine is literally just below us. Nijmegen is 11 kilometres. On a clear day, you can see Nijmegen. And you can just see and almost feel how close the British ground troops got to actually relieving the airborne troops who were at this position. Um, as we Are make there any our memorials in this area, Joe, to the troops who fought there? Yeah, so you have a memorial um, at this particular position. There's a cafe up there now. So you've got a memorial to the 1st Border Regiment who held the position until eventually they were pulled off, pushed off by um, German troops, but also to the Dorset Regiment. And it was the Dorset Regiments that tried to reinforce this perimeter um, so there's two memorials on the cafe that you can stand and quite a lot of people take photographs around the um, time of the commemorations. You'll often see wreaths um, at the area. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And where to next on our tour of the battlefield? Right, so next we drop down, um, carrying along on this road that runs parallel to the Rhine. And another real iconic place um, is a place known as the Tohorst House. Um, now, for those of you or anyone that's watched A Bridge Too Far, um, you will have seen Kate Tohorst. She's played by Liv Ullman in the film. 
and Kate de Horst was a Dutch woman um, living in Oosterbeek at the time of the drops. She had her children still living with her. Her husband had seen the parachutist dropping out of the sky, realised what was going on, immediately donned an orange armband to denote he was Dutch and had gone into Arnhem to see what help he could give to any resistance in Arnhem itself. And Kate is left with her three children. And during the battle, the medical officer for the 1st Airborne Division, a guy called Graham Warwick, he knocks on her door and asks her if possible, if she would be able to take in casualties in the cellar in her house. And um, eventually, when things didn't turn out at Arnhem quite, quite as we, the British Airborne Division wanted it, uh, wanted it to turn out, they didn't, when all uh, defence at the bridge had failed, her house became a regimental aid post and something like 57 soldiers were buried in her garden um, after the battle. But throughout, she provided comfort to the troops in the cellar. She would read to them from the Bible. She would hold men's hands um, and they died in her house. And it's a real iconic um house still owned by the same family and they were quite a tragic family because um Kate after the war in the 90s was tragically killed in a car accident just outside her house and her son was killed um after the war out on the fields behind the house was killed by a mine probably from the second world war um, but she is a real um it, she's she was an iconic figure and to the men of the 1st Airborne Division, her daughter Sophie, who still lives in the, horse, the house, and who I, I've, I've met Sophie, um, they will open up their gardens generally um, to the men from the 1st Airborne Division to uh, visitors, um, even today, and she has memorials in her garden. Although I would sort of say to caveat that, they are quite a private family, and you, you do sometimes get people sort of trying to, enter the garden without permission um, so you have to be quite careful the house though also sits next to the old kirk so old church and it was the oldest church in the netherlands at the time it goes back to the 13th century and the paras would have gone past it and here on the second morning the 18th um, some of the guns were just by the church you've got a wall you'll see a wall uh, surrounds the church and the guns here uh, were placed from the um, artillery. They had gun emplacements there. I think it was 70 millimeter pack howitzers. And they were able to actually fire onto the bridge. So the gunners, they had really good communications. They had about the best communications. But there was a gun battery placed here. Their code name was um, Mike 1. And when the bridge at Arnhem was attacked on the 18th of that morning, they were able to fire onto the bridge. There is nothing of the guns there, but you can actually see the position where they were put there. It's a fascinating area, Joe. I mean, how much you've mentioned a couple of buildings that are iconic in the history of the fighting. How many of those buildings still remain? Or was it an area that we should think of like the First World War where everything was raised to the ground? Loads of the buildings still remain. One of the things that most guides do when we go out is we do then and now photographs and you can get really, really good then and now photographs. I mean, the, the church was pretty much destroyed. The spire was knocked off it. Um, houses were damaged. But generally, the whole area around Oosterbeek, you can 
bring up a photograph of what it looked like during the battle. I mean, windows were um, knocked out and buildings were damaged, but they have been built um, to what they looked like before. Um, so there's a lot of the area you can see um, that is is very what it would have looked like during the battle. And you can still see battle damage and scarring. Um, the church itself is pockmarked with battle damage on it. Well, we walk past the church and where are we heading to next? So as we walk past the church, um, we're going to walk past a fork in the road. It's actually a track. And this is the first point that we've reached the first objective. In the distance, you can see the railway bridge. And this is the objective of C Company, a C Company led by um, a guy called Major Dover. And they peel off from the main route of advance. So the 2nd Parachute Battalion plus elements of the 1st Parachute Brigade are making their way to the bridge. They peel, uh, Major Dover peels off and together with his company of men, they get up onto the railway bridge itself, onto the railway line. And because they've been fairly oof in it down to the, um, towards the Arnhem Bridge, they stop for a moment drop their packs and just stop and take a breather. And it's probably a good job they do because the whole of the railway bridge goes up. It had been charged for demolition. Um, those charges had gone up. Um, and right where they are, there's no way they can now get over the railway bridge south in order to run parallel on the other side of the Rhine to reach the southern part of the main road bridge. So their first objective is already destroyed. Um, but as we move down the road, um, we go underneath the railway line. And there's a story um, as you go underneath the railway line. This is the first point, really, that the 2nd Parachute Battalion are going to um, experience enemy, come into contact with the enemy. And it's from the railway line. And Lieutenant Peter Crane, he goes up onto the railway line with his platoon of men. And in his platoon, he's got two brothers, Tom and Claude Grunart. And their story is a fairly, um, it's, it, it's a no, it's a well-known story. Um, both of them were tin miners from Cornwall and they enlisted at the same time. So their army numbers are just one number apart and they're twins. They were born on the same day and they go up onto the railway line with Lieutenant Peter Kane and they, the railway bends round into Arnhem and on that bend, um, there's two kind of stories here. One is that the Germans open up with machine gun fire. And the other story is that a German walks towards them with a white flag offering to surrender. And anyhow, Tom Grunart goes forward. And as he goes forward, he's hit by enemy machine gun fire. And he lies on the railway line, mortally wounded. And Claude hears his brother screaming and obviously runs towards to see what he can help him and he is also hit and he is also killed and they're buried today at the Oosterbeek Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery together um, obviously their dates of birth are the same their date of death is the same and their army serial number is one number apart and that is a popular story everybody goes to visit the Grunart twins but many years ago I think it was on the 60th anniversary I took out the regimental parachute regimental association of cornwall so where they would have had they survived the war they've probably been part of that association and um one of the passengers was on board and she had been the lady that tom 
prior to going to Market Garden, Tom and Claude had got a bit of downtime and they'd gone back home. They'd got a, I don't know, a 48-hour pass. And they were stood on the railway line. Um, they were stood at the railway station um, to go back to um, back to First Airborne p- prior to deployment. And she said, she said, I knew there was something wrong with Tom. I knew he didn't want to go back. And I asked him what was wrong. And he said, I don't think I'm going to come back from this one. And she said, I remember saying to him, just go and catch the train. Go and catch the train. The war's going to be over by Christmas. And then we can come back and we can all celebrate properly. And uh, she was on my coach. And uh, we went as close to the railway line as we possibly could get. And she had a little cross. And she put it down. And all it said on it was, you should never have caught the train. How do you find that, Joe? I mean, you've had the, the rare privilege of speaking to a lot of veterans from this. I mean, these personal stories, uh, we, I mean, we can walk the battlefields and we can see historic sites, which is always very moving. But those stories, those personal stories must stay with you as you walk this ground. They, they very much do. I mean, I have been so privileged to meet a lot of the Arnhem veterans. Um, so I've had friends who were, one in particular, I have to thank the introduction, Mike Peters, another of your guides for Matt McLaughlin. He introduced me to a guy called Peter Clark. And Peter Clark was a really good friend of mine. And we became um, good friends because we both grew up a generation apart in the same area. And he would say to me, Joe, I used to ride my bike down Saltbox Hill and I rode my bike down the same hill. Um, We went to school just you know, about a mile apart from each other. And Peter Clark, with I mentioned earlier, with the glider pilots, Peter, um, they, the British glider pilots, once they got on the ground, they took on the role of infantry troops. And Peter Clark was a medic. And um, so he looked after the wounded. And at the end of the battle, um, the 1st Airborne Division, the majority of them evacuated back across the Rhine those that were able and fit to do so. But because Peter was a medic, he had wounded to look after. And so he had the choice, do I stay with the wounded and look look after them and consequently be captured by the enemy? Or do I evacuate myself? I'm, I'm fit, I'm able to do so. Do I go back across the Rhine with the rest of the division? And he stayed and looked after the wounded. And um, consequently, he became a prisoner of the enemy and he was taken to one of the stalags in Germany and eventually was liberated by Americans at the end of the war. And after the war, he used to phone me up and I used to phone him up and we used to email each other all the time. But he kept a diary and he said to me, Joe, and he had this very clipped English accent, very, you know, that kind of 1930s black and white film accent. And he said, Joe, I really do need to get this diary transcribed and I took it off him and I transcribed it all and so Peter died about two or three years ago now and I remember the morning he died Um, but I'm so glad I transcribed that diary for him because it's now in perpetuity um, at the Airborne Museum it's on a website called Paradata and anyone can look it up Um, so there's a little bit of his, his history still lives on that's wonderful, Joe. Well done. That that is obviously a an incredibly significant connection. I'm I'm jealous of the connection you've had with these uh these heroes of of Arnhem. And um, speaking of these guys, where are we uh, heading in their footsteps next? 
Okay, so we leave the um, we leave our first objective. That's the um, railway bridge, and the second objective is the objective of B Company. Um, is the pontoon bridge now? Pon- the pontoon. There's nothing left of the pontoon bridge today, but to mark it is a bridge. Uh, it's a modern day bridge. It's called the Nelson Mandela Bridge, um, and it's a modern day 1970s structure. But that is virtually the position as we're walking down now. We're we're entering the outskirts of Arnhem. Um, we've passed a building called St Elizabeth's Guest House, and at that point, um, the road splits and you've got a high point of the road and the lower road and we're going to follow the lower road but at that point where we pass St Elizabeth's Hospital the 16th parachute field ambulance they peel off because St Elizabeth's Hospital again a really iconic building and its facade is exactly the same today as it was during the battle that is there that's been earmarked for them to set up a field hospital um there and most passengers or yeah 100%, 99% 100%, 99% of passengers will visit the St. Elizabeth's Hospital because it's also the area where later on in the battle, um, General Urquhart, the divisional commander, he gets trapped in a house just by St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which means he's out of the battle for a full 24 hours. Um, it's all around this area. But for us, we're following 2nd Parachute Battalion. The Nelson Mandela Bridge earmarks the spot where the pontoon bridge is. B Company's objective. By the time they get to it, however, um, the centre uh, section of the bridge has been destroyed. So there's the second objective that we're unable to take. So everything now hinges on the first or oh, the 2nd Parachute Battalion being able to um, take the main Arnhem Road Bridge. And what happens in that chapter? We're getting to the crescendo of the fighting. Tell us about the second paras and the and the Arnhem Bridge. Yeah. Okay, so Frost has got a depleted second parachute battalion. He's got most of his C company are still back trying to um at the at the railway bridge. B company has peeled off to, and is um peeled off to take the pontoon bridge. So Frost has got what's left of his men together with elements of first parachute brigade. He gets to the bridge. He begins to form a defensive perimeter. Now, this defensive perimeter means that they're going to enter houses. They're going to knock out glass windows. They're going to build, start to uh, get the houses ready for defence. And at the moment, Frost knows he's only got the northern end of the bridge. He needs to send, he needs to take the southern end of the bridge. And various attempts are made. Um, But the very last attempt is made um, by two glider pilots manhandling a six-pounder anti-tank gun up onto the bridge. And the steps are still there where they took this gun up. They'll turn the gun at 180 degrees and fire onto a pillbox on the bridge where they where already enemy troops have been spotted. At the same time that they manhandle this gun up onto the bridge, um, I think his name's Sapper Wilkinson. I'm pre- pretty sure his name's Sapper Wilkinson. Will fire a flamethrower from the eastern side of the bridge into the pillbox. This happens. It doesn't work out quite as well as they want because there's an ammunition bunker right behind it, and um, the whole lot goes up like the Fourth of July fireworks party. By which time the enemy is now fully on alert. Prior to the Second Parachute Battalion getting to the Arnhem Bridge, though. A deployment 
of German troops at about six o'clock that night. Second para gets there about seven, about seven, eight o'clock at night. But about six o'clock, a deployment of uh, the 9th SS Reconnaissance Battalion had been ordered to go down to Nijmegen. They're commanded by a guy called Victor Grabner. And on the second day, so the British get there on the 17th, they form their defensive perimeter on the 17th. But on the morning of the 18th, Grabner, having gone down to Nijmegen, having um, done his recce down there, is sitting at the southern end of the Arnhem Bridge, surveying the British positions at the northern end of the bridge. Now, nobody really knows whether he is just... He's been awarded the Knight's Cross only 24 hours before. Whether he sort of thinks, right, okay, I'm going to take out the British positions myself in a gung-ho attempt to do so, or whether he's trying to get back to his own headquarters. He's got a number of vehicles with him, uh, lorried infantry and half-tracks. A half-track is you've got like a... um, a, a, It's an open-like tank at the back with half of it is tracked and half of it is wheeled. Does that make sense? Armoured vehicles. He's got 22 of these uh, together with infantry troops. And he looks at the British positions at the northern end of the bridge. And what he knows is the British is on an, the bridge, sorry, is on an apex. So you go up and over it. He knows that that until he gets to the centre of that apex, he's got a bit of cover. And he sends his two um lighter vehicles through first and they go through past the British positions um, and they manage to weave in and out of mines that the British have placed on the northern end of the bridge and with almost sort of like a a drop of his hand he signals the start for his heavier um, vehicles to go across the bridge. The British who are at the northern end of the bridge the first they're aware of anything is the bridge begins to kind of judder with this heavy armour starting to go across it. And initially, they think this is 30 Corps. So the armoured British armoured troops coming up to rescue them, it's not 30 Corps. It's Grabner's men and his attack. And the British are told to hold their fire. They're in buildings that overlook the bridge ramp. So they have got the advantage of being able to look down on anything crossing that bridge. And initially, they hold their fire. And they wait until Grabner's vehicles get into a killing zone before they open up. And they open up with absolutely everything. Bren guns, grenades, uh, rifle fire, Sten guns, all being fired on these half-tracks. The lead half-track, the driver bulks, um, stops his vehicle, slams it into reverse, and reverses it back into the second half-track. And both of them... Um, fall off the eastern side of the ramp and are taken out by the paras in the buildings on the eastern side of the ramp. And literally, um, as the half-tracks come to a halt, burning oil starts to spew across the um, bridge itself. This catches fire. A lot of the enemy troops, seeing that they're being fired on um, by the British from above them, and some of the British are throwing grenades into the open compartments of the half-tracks, Many men will jump into the Rhine um, as a way uh, to get out of the British killing zone. Major Dennis Mumford, he's the artillery officer at the bridge. He calls in the guns that are back at the church. He calls them in with their call sign, Mike 1. They begin to fire onto the bridge. And there's this huge attack. 
that will last most of the morning of the 18th. By the midday on the 18th, the attack has been petered out and the British are jubilant. You know, this is a high moment in their defence at the northern end of the bridge. But what it means for the Germans is that Arnhem Bridge is blocked, completely blocked. They cannot deploy armour further down south, down that corridor, to stop the British ground troops advance or the American um, airborne divisions. It's a fascinating story, Joe. And can you feel that history when you go to the bridge? Can you stand on or near the bridge and, and get a good understanding of what happened that day? You can to a point. Um, you can, if you have a good guide, you can, if you have um, a lot of pictures. I use a lot of pictures at the bridge because the bridge today, um, it was destroyed predominantly in 1945. So when, after uh, the British left Arnhem, the whole of the area of Arnhem was still in German hands. And in 1945, when Arnhem was eventually liberated, a lot of it was destroyed. So those beautiful old Dutch houses, there are still a few of them around the bridge area, but it looks nothing like um, today what it would have looked like in 45 because it was destroyed. So a lot of the structure there are 1970s structures. If you go into Arnhem town itself, um, around You've got two churches, St. Walburgis and St. Eusebius churches. Um, there's still battle damage on those. But to a point you can, but to a point it has been built up with this 1970s quite ugly architecture. So I use a lot of pictures when I'm there. Another battlefield where uh, we need uh, to use our imagination to see exactly what went on. But I think the, the ghosts always have their way of telling their story. I mean, this is... We're on the bridge now. This is really the end of our journey. I mean, a couple of very tough days of fighting followed and then it was uh, all over for the British, wasn't it, sadly? Yeah, it was. Um, so going into sort of like the 18th and 19th, um, what the Germans decide to do, once that bridge is blocked, they are literally going to annihilate the British at the northern end of the um of the bridge itself and the Germans have the advantage of armour. Now the disadvantage for the armour is in 1945 some of these roadways to get into the bridge, to filter into the bridge are narrow with high um, Dutch houses so very difficult for the armour to penetrate but they start penetrating on the eastern side of the bridge and they will literally come in under the main um, ramparts of the bridge fire, infantry go in, literally lobbing grenades through the buildings that the British are in. And if you're quick enough, you can catch it and lob a grenade out again. And it's fighting from house to house, from room to room. One of the, um, I don't use the word heroes a lot because I don't think British soldiers like to regard themselves as heroes, but one of the main characters um, here on the bridge, well, there's two main characters. One of them is a guy called Greyburn, and Greyburn sees the Germans coming underneath the bridge and, and and trying to place demolition charges under it. What they want to do is take out the ramp, not the actual bridge itself. And he, together with a bunch of engineers, they try and destroy these demolition charges. And he effectively withdraws his men under enemy machine gun fire. He would have been one of the proliferate characters at the start of the um when the british first got to the bridge trying to get to the southern part but he's killed in the battle his name is Greyburn, 
and he would be awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions on the bridge. If you watch the film A Bridge Too Far, he is a mishmash of the character um, Tatham Water, who is the man that carried the umbrella. So in A Bridge Too Far, you see the man that carries the umbrella. He also wore a bowler hat, Tatham Water. He would survive the war. Now, in the film, he gets killed, but he survives the war. And he has a fantastic story, all his own, that there's a book recently been published on him because he manages to um, um, escape the the enemy. And um, he's he's taken in by Dutch resistance. And eventually in the October of 45, Tatham Water, together with a guy called Tony Hibbert, will lead the largest escape attempt of the Second World War in an operation called Operation Pegasus, where the Dutch had looked after a lot of these men who'd been at the bridge and had managed to escape. But that's another story for another day. The eastern side of the bridge gradually um, is pretty much destroyed. And they're just small pockets of men that remain on the western side of the bridge. And the idea, Tatham Water, together with Goff, come up with an idea to withdraw the men from the bridge itself in the hope that they may regroup again on, a, I think, about the 20th of September, regroup and still form that defence at the bridge. But really, by the morning of the, def- uh, of the 20th, all defence at the bridge has literally um, been destroyed. Um, the British have managed to get up to Nijmegen, which is about 11 kilometres to the south, but really all defence at the bridge is destroyed. And men are told to make their way to a pocket in a place called Oosterbeek. They will form a perimeter there um, and hold out really for another five or six days there in another part of the battle. Um, many of those at the bridge of the 740 men um, at the bridge, only 150 remain. The rest will be taken prisoner, killed or wounded. And um, one of the other little personal stories, if I may just tell you about it very quickly, is um, another person that I knew knew very well, and he was called Tony Hibbert. And Tony Hibbert was 1st Parachute Brigade commander. He gets taken prisoner by the Germans and when I first met him, he said, it was on the commemoration, he said, Joe, are you going up to Brummen, which is north of Arnhem, as part of your visit to Arnhem? And I said, didn't really know what happened at Brummen. And I said, well, I wasn't intending to. And he said, well, you really must come. So Tony Hibbert, after the bridge fell, he got taken prisoner, put in a lorry with a number of other troops and taken other up. Originally, they were taken to a place called Velp, which is north of Arnhem. And then on to Brumman, and they're in a lorry, and it's Saturday, it's a market day. And the local people are at the market, and the lorries stop, and I don't know why they stopped, and I don't think Tony ever knew why they stopped. It might have been to replenish water, or for whatever reason. And um, all the um, prisoners are taken off the lorry, and the Germans form a, form a guard around them. And Tony Hibbert sees this as his one opportunity to escape, so he leapfrogs through the guard, runs through the local Dutch population who close behind him. It's market day. They realise very quickly what he's done, closes behind him. And Tony Hibbert will eventually become part of that big Operation Pegasus, escape back across the Lower Rhine. What he didn't know was that in reprisal for his escape, the Germans shot 12 British troops and they have a memorial at the post office at Brummen. And Tony Hibbert took it 
personally and he said I always visit Brumman because I feel personally responsible for the deaths of those men. Now he died as well quite a few years ago but I was up in Brumman last year and we went to the post office and Tony Hibbert's family still carry out that tradition of placing a wreath at the post office at Brumman. Just extraordinary stories, Joe. I, you know, the the combination of of admiration and horror, and it's just incredible stories. It's it's, it's an incredible battlefield. And as I said, I've only done a small part of the Market Garden battlefield, but I can't get, I can't wait to get back over there. Perhaps when I'm over in Europe later this year, we'll get a chance to walk it together. But it's a fascinating story, and and brought to life by these touch points on the battlefield. Um, thank you so much for just sharing it with us. It's my pleasure. It's a battle that I want to share with everybody because it, it, it gets to you. It really gets to your soul. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.